Well, for those of you into AFL, the football finals are about to sweep the nation as we air this next episode of Human Cogs. So we thought who better to get on the show than an ex-AFL player and coach to explore both the game of football and the game of life. Now, there are lots of things that we assume about people who are outliers, people who have gone beyond the everyday, achieved extraordinary success, and who completely and undeniably stand out from the rest of us. Scott Waters is one of those people. From his Huckleberry Finn childhood exploring holiday islands and looking for adventure, to tens of thousands of hours playing sport in his youth, Scott pushed to get the absolute best out of himself at all times which led to him having a really successful VFL career, then an AFL career, and ultimately saw him at the helm of the St Kilda Football Club as head coach. But what happened next challenged him. And in this conversation of human cogs, I sit with Scott and talk about his Croatian-Australian heritage, his talent and his drive. Is it born? Is it built? About success and failure and where growth and learning come from when you actually step into the arena to face crisis. Scott knows this all too well. As the founder and CEO of the National Life Changer Foundation, his organisation works to help students connect with inspiring mentors to share, repair, connect and build life-affirming skills at moments of clear challenge. In our chat, Scott has some really great tips on what parents can do to recognise and find the hero in their own kids. And he shares his own advice on what can give us all connection and clear space in moments of adversity and anxiety. There's heaps in this conversation that we can all use to change our own lives and stories, no matter who we are, where we are, or where we're at. Here's my conversation with Scott. Scott, I'm going to start at the very beginning. There's a lot of things you've done with your life. I'd actually love to understand more about who was Scott as a kid? Who was Scott as a kid? I was really fortunate. I had a Huckleberry Finn type existence, grew up south of Fremantle in a suburb called Hamilton Hill, which was um, really developing but working-class suburb, you know, blessed with two great parents with really strong values but had to really work hard for everything that they got. So that whole environment, lots of open space. We would holiday um, on an island called Garden Island, which was just off the coast, and I'd just walk around the island um, having a great time exploring so a combination of exploring my community and my environment and looking for ways to find mischief and trouble and excitement and adventure was also sort of interwoven with a just a real passion for anything that, you know, looked like sport. You know, I used to get lost in, in playing sport as a, as a young boy, just that real pure feeling of being creative with a, with a, with a ball or a bat. You know, that was my happy place. Who introduced you to sport or put a ball in your hands? That's a really good question. I think some of that, I think part of that is innate. I think, you know, I see it in my own. I've got three boys and I've got my middle boy. I watched really early just I could see how much he enjoyed picking up a basketball and just playing with it and throwing it. So I think some of it um, I think is in your wiring. And then obviously you watch those that are around you. Um, Look, my dad played all sports, loved all sports, so I'm sure I wanted to be like my dad. Did he play footy? He did. He played at, um, look, a really high level. But priorities were different. Um, AFL didn't exist, but VFL did. But he also raised his family from his father left when he was 13. So he had to assume a really being, – being a father to his um, brother and sister was much bigger priority for him than actually being a, 
a VFL footballer. He had enough talent to go as far as he wanted to, but it wasn't his priority. But he was he was damn good. Mm. So you reckon there is some DNA definitely that gets passed down. It's not there's something in your wiring in that you're wired to want to go and like get out there and get grab that ball. We look at um Don Bradman and some others where we know they went out and repeatedly like got the ball in their hands. But do you think there's something that has come through the DNA in your family where you've got this real talent that's passed down? Yeah, I think genetics play a part. So if I wanted to be a basketballer, it probably wasn't going to happen at five, nine and a half, right? So no matter how hard I worked, maybe maybe that wasn't going to happen. So yeah, part of it is certainly you know, there's a talent to play elite level sport that I think you can't hide from, but there's also, there's drive and work ethic and time and commitment and mastering your craft that adds to the talent. Talent alone is never enough. No, talent, timing, team around you, 100%. all those things. Have you read um, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers? Yes. Uh, and that theory of 10,000 hours that, that, yes, you've got to have talent, but you've also got to be born at a certain time into the right kind of family or location where you get access to the ball or the field or the whatever, and that you spent 10,000 hours. How many thousands of hours do you reckon you spent mucking around with balls as, as a kid? Um, Sports balls, that is. Uh, <laughs> um, significantly more than 10,000. Um, really? Every, oh, absolutely. And that book actually... It's a great book and where the first time I read it, I was coaching at Collingwood and actually immediately bought copies and made all our assistant coaches read that read that book because it's such an important background understanding to how you develop a skill. What was so important about that book? Why did you buy it for everybody? Different ways to look at how your environment contributes to your development ultimately and when you're in a coaching environment in an AFL level, you're always trying to maximise the time that players have there to get the best out of themselves. I guess you reflect, I reflected on my own childhood. So for me, I had a park directly opposite where we lived. Pretty much every moment for me was either grabbing a, a golf club and dad's golf balls out of his bag or a football um, and going across and just getting lost at on that park. And I also was really keen to get on that park because I knew that just around the corner, about one street away from the park, there was a guy by the name of John Todd that who was revered um, footballer, um, won a Sandover medal, which is the equivalent of a Brownlow in Western Australia, the youngest age ever. And I knew that he lived 300 metres away from my house, which I think was just at, at that age, eight, nine, ten. that was exciting for me. Is this I, the 70s or when are we talking about? Um, I was born 69. So, yeah, late, you know, I'm probably from the age of eight to 14 really. The, the, but I would go across to that park hoping also that he would drive past and see me. I don't know what he was going to do if he saw me. Did um, you try and do a specky or something when he was dry, like in the hope that he? Prob- <laughs> probably, but um, you know, I, the, the funny part of that whole story ultimately is my first game of football, um, AFL football. Uh, John Todd was the coach, so in a funny way, I eventually got under his nose, if you like, and um, he noticed me. But uh, I don't know why, but I just thought if I stay out on this park long enough and I, someone will see that I've actually got some talent, there was not a lot of science to that. But I was mastering my craft and spending time with that ball, learning how it bounced. Um, learning who, how it, who was out there with you? Often I'd be by myself or you would do your best to recruit the neighbourhood you know, most of my, a lot of my still long-term friends, there was, there was two brothers, Matthew and Mark Sambrello, right, that lived 100 metres away from that oval. And they, they will recall that, and they were older than me, they were five or six years older, 
And they jokingly now when we catch up, they say, oh, we remember you at eight, nine or ten and you would come up and you'd be knocking on the door and mum would come to them and go, Scott Waters is at the door. And they'd come out and they were two really big young guys and it would be like, hey, would you guys come out and have a kick? And said, we'd come down the park and kick with you and then, you know, seven or eight years later, you were actually playing VFL and footy, et cetera. And that, we still remember you as the 10-year-old that would come and knock on the door, begging us to come and kick the ball. So I would recruit heavily anyone that was interested in having a kick or organising a game of three-on-three. Three. You know, it was also a different time where distractions, there weren't as many. So for me it was cricket in the summer, footy in the winter. I loved basketball as well. But outside of those three things. Well, what are you going to do, watch Skippy? Or yeah, countdown on a yeah, Sunday. Skip yeah. was good, but it wasn't. <laughs> um, yeah. It didn't attract my attention like like sport did. Did you have siblings? Younger sister, five years younger, who had her own athletic talent. You know, in some ways, really good swimmer, and could have done a lot more. But I often, um, and she's done, gone on, done some amazing things around social work and community. But I, I do often think that you know, I attracted a lot of attention because of what I was doing sporting wise, and I was sort of. I guess touted early as being someone that had some potential. And I wonder if that pushed her away from sporting opportunity sometimes. So she wanted to find her own path because she had a lot of talent, but she's gone on to use that talent in different ways. But um, maybe if I wasn't there, she would have actually, who knows, she could have done something different in a sporting sense. But Yeah, maybe. Like siblings affect each other, probably their pathways, and they each mm. find their place and identity and maybe define themselves against each other. A Definitely. Bit. Did your mum and dad, like, were they really supportive? They could, they could see you had talent drive. Were they wanting to go the journey with you? Always there, but never, I thought they parented me really well. Um <laughs> Always there but never pushy. Dad was an outstanding role model that I, I actually reflect on how he um, nurtured me as a sports person, not just as a son because the tendency, and I see it in a lot of parents now around junior sport, it's you don't get to live your dreams through your son or your daughter in a sporting sense. You get to be a, a passenger and a supporter. Leave it at that. So an example would be, I'd get in the car after a game of footy, 12 years of age. Dad would never speak to me first. He would he would be there for my conversations, but he would never start a conversation by, you know, this is what you should have done or what happened there. He would just leave the space and in mentoring sense it's just called holding the space. And because of that I would always come to him. So we'd be in the car and be 10 minutes. If I played a bad game, there'd be like 10 minutes of silence. But While my, you were crying? Uh, no, I wasn't a crier, but I would get frustrated. But then my question would come, you know, Dad, what would you have done in this circumstance? And he said, oh, well, you know, here's one way you might look at it. Or, But it was always me coming to him. And I think that promoted a really good dynamic. So the advice that I give to parents who've got aspiring sports kids, be a supporter first. Don't be their coach. Just get in a supportive phase. But when you get in that car after the rep basketball game on a Friday night, as much as you want to say something because you can see things, just let them talk. Just keep the space because um, that way you'll keep them as a son and daughter and you'll help them become their best athlete but you won't lose their friendship and their, you know, the most important thing is that you're the father or the mum, not their coach. Yeah, yeah, and you see some ugly and toxic versions of, of that and I'm sure you've seen stacks of it um, uh, through your career. And and maybe part of that, um, I do a bunch of mentoring and obviously we work with lots of young kids through Future Amp and, and Girl World and um, I see mentoring as um, not sort of shining 
a light to light the path forward, but shining a light or a mirror back to the person so they see themselves more clearly as opposed to having silver bullets, answers and some holy grail for where people need to take themselves because I think what I'm hearing you say is that creating that space allows you to surface the question that you're asking yourself and having a safe space within which to have that conversation. Yeah, correct. um, In a a similar way, we actually have mentors come into our our Life Changer workshops and often when mentors first get involved – They've either got great lived experience or a real passion to want to contribute to others, which is awesome. You know, it's such a powerful purpose to that brings energy to the whole piece. But one of the bits of advice that we always share is listening is actually almost, the, I think it's the most important skill as a mentor. Um, not talking, but just listening. The opportunity will come to talk, but just if you can just hold, 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 you just create a space where it's a shared experience, not just a, a presentation as a mentor. Yeah, or a demonstration yeah. of knowledge or an information bomb yes. on a person or any of that. Yeah. We'll get into Life Changer and absolutely would love to open up that space. But if we, if we track on then, so you're a kid, you, you're out 10,000 yep. hours, and then at which point did you know, I reckon I've got the secret sauce, I've got enough talent, I've got someone touch me on the shoulder. At which point do you think, I reckon I can make it? I thought about it at 10. Um, I know exactly where I was. I was on that park that I've mentioned. I was with one of my primary school mates by the name of Eric Peterson. And I remember testing the waters, right? My biggest my biggest sporting aspiration right at that point was to play for South Fremantle Football Club, which was a state league club. You know, they'd have 20,000 people turn up on a weekend and it, it really it lit a fire in me when I would watch them. So I remember saying to Eric Peterson on that park – um, and I was sort of just throwing this out to see what response I would get more than anything to see if he'd validate it or throw it out. And I said, oh, I said, yeah, you know what I'd like to do? I'd, I'd actually like to play for South Fremantle one day. And I thought he was just going to say, mate, you're kidding yourself. Um, you got no chance. And he turned to me and Eric was dry as dry can be. And he, he turned to me and said, yeah, he said, oh, I think you can do that. And that actually, I, I took a step back because that was the first time I actually sort of went, if one person thinks I could actually do that, maybe I could. And that was the first moment where it became, it was a goal. Then it was crystallised in my own mind as it was a, it was possible. Wow. Um, but yeah, I know exactly where I was. It's one of those moments that is... Um, Life-changing. It's a photo. Yeah, probably. <laughs> wow. And then so track us forward to, you know, what, what was the first team that you, you joined that was sort of the big-time league Really, it's state league level. So you go through all the junior pathways. Um, you get into some elite level programs. So you sort of get validated along the way and you build your confidence and you build your your craft and your skill set. I played my first game of sort of league football um, in front of 20,000 people at Fremantle Oval whilst I was still at school. How so old were you? 17. I was in my last year of school. So my nickname was Schoolboy. Um, so I'd turn up to training literally in my school uniform with a bag on my shoulder with playing with 33-year-old men. Um, you were the only one, the only I was young, the only one at school. Young yeah. guy, wow. That was quite – it was a really interesting experience sort of being at school but also being in an adult's environment on the weekend. So you're playing sport with, yeah, as I said, you know, 30, 35-year-old men playing in front of big crowds and people are paying to be there and all of that. But then you're actually, you know, you're sitting in an English class the, the following day. 
Um, so it's like you were living in two separate worlds. Um, who, who sort of mentored you at that time? Because that'd be quite difficult to navigate as a as a young seventeen year old playing with adults. For me, it was never one person. It was it was a group. I had a really outstanding uh, junior coach, sort of in under fourteens, under sixteen, so around that age, who got me starting to think about what was coming. So his name was Doug Biffin. There's always a few people in your life that I'll never forget. And he was junior footy coach, loved his, loved his footy, but importantly for me, he started talking about the pathway and different challenges that will come and what's it going to be like when you're 16 playing against, you know, men. You might need to think differently because you're not strong enough yet, but you might be smarter. So think about how you access that. So he was a really good mentor in preparation and then when I got to South Fremantle, I had a, a brilliant coach who, his name was Brian Sikotosko, who was a very good footballer in his own right, but was a really good builder of young men. He was cheeky. He was creative. He had a real focus on, you, you, it's like a football to me, and I'll still say this to kids when I coach them now, it's your tool, right? It's like picking up a hammer and a chisel or uh, if you're a carpenter, et cetera. So he, he instilled in me that if you touch that football, you treat it with it – it's a tool of your craft. So you treat it with that absolute respect. It's like you're going to work. You treat it with – revere it. So his appetite for high-level skill um, acquisition, that really – it resonated with and stays with me still. If I'm talking to junior sporting kids right now, one of the first things I'll always say to him, if I'm just getting introduced to a group and I see kids with a basketball and they're – not treating their skill set with respect, I'll actually challenge them on that straight away. So if you, if you, if you can't give it your 100% focus, and that can still be fun and creative, put it down. Don't treat it with disrespect. And then they sort of go, this is, you know, so well, if you want to become really good, that's the dedication that you've got to have to your craft. So he instilled that in me. So I had a, I had a lot of different mentors that um, you take something from all of them, I think. Mm. And so you said he was a really great builder of young men, but at that time you would have been around a lot of young men and, and moving into sort of more adult men. And what we know is football culture is was, it's getting better, pretty toxic. And so how do you build good young men in, the, in an environment that's got some pretty uh, complex, masculine, uh, toxic cultural elements? I think it's too simplistic to actually say that it was toxic. I think there are elements of sporting organisations um, and corporate groups, for that matter, um, where there was certainly some yeah parts of it. Were absolutely, toxic. yeah, absolutely, not all of it. And yeah. there were parts of it that were incredible opportunities and unbelievably amazing places to be a part of as well. I think one of the great things that you know, I really cherish out of my journey, particularly probably the, even the early days, is you get to make decisions on which parts of the toxicity or the great things you want to take with you from that point forward. So I actually, in a, in a crazy way, I'm thankful for seeing some toxicity because it gave me a view of what I didn't want to be or the sort of leader that if I got the chance to be a leader down the track, well, that's something that I wouldn't allow happen in a team that I was involved in. What do you put it down to what created that what were the particular sort of dynamics or mechanisms inside the clubs or the broader sector that created that i think it's often ignorance it's just not understanding and i see this in corporate groups and sporting groups 
when you really know what um, what is at stake or what you can leverage through that sporting um, group or corporate group, which is just knowledge, um, then I think you shape your culture differently. So, you know, when we go back, you know, to when I started playing football, culture was barely a word that was even used. Now, culture has become such a – it's used in everywhere now, right? But 20, 30 years ago, culture was sort of this amazing mystical thing that not many people really spoke about or even thought could drive performance. I think we're getting to a point where good corporate organisations and sporting clubs have an understanding of how important good culture is to driving an outcome. Yeah. Where it was seen as a bonus. Or it was seen as a, an output or an after effect. Culture yeah. was the thing that was left behind when we left the building. Necessary. Rather than implicit or explicit to say this is the culture we create through our values, through our behaviours, uh, actions and people actually understanding that all of that, the sum of all of that is a culture that's healthy that can actually be created. Yes. So, um, so you moved on from playing to coaching and would it be fair to say that some of that uh, toxicity or, or the sort of darker side of, of the football world um, bubbled up when uh, you had that complex time uh, when you were in coach of St Kilda and left the club? Can you talk a little bit about that and, and and how you actually coped with coming out of that really complex time for you. Yeah, absolutely. I actually didn't go straight from playing to coaching as well. I, I had a pretty much a five-year gap where, you know, I explored some business opportunities and I, I did some – I got involved in the media and that was still in, around sport mainly but not only sport. And then I sort of got dragged back into coaching. It was always an itch that I knew at some point I would scratch. Um, Why was it itchy? There's not many environments that present you the opportunity to really be competitive. So you get it as a player. You know, it's that gladiatorial competitive opportunity. You should have gone into politics, Scotty. Well, it's not too late, but I'm hopefully I'm, hopefully <laughs> I'm smarter. But, you know, when you think about go, the bear pit or the gladiatorial definitely. sort of thing, you know, or in sort of maybe VC world where you've got that real ad- adversarial yep. sort of dynamic in there. Yeah. Right. You like that, do you? Like that kind of live or die? I think those friction, big reward often comes from those spaces and there's there's high risk, high reward, which you know when you're going, becoming an AFL coach, you already know at some point you're going to be sacked. That's just part of that journey. Yeah, for me, look, playing presents you with that environment in a more individual way. Coaching is not just a transition from being a player. It's the difference between being a um, a plumber and a techie. They're, they're not the same. Coaching... In, in terms of what you're using from a mental models or... It's just different. Playing is still very much... It's the more of the focus is still you, right? You've got a much more selfish mindset. So it's about, you know, your recovery, your performance, your nutrition. You know, your body is ultimately a machine and your mind is a, is a, a mechanism that you've got to get both right to be the best you can be and then fit that within a team structure. But your ultimate responsibility is really to getting yourself to be the best you can be. Coaching is very different to that. There's a lot of moving parts including the playing group at an AFL level, you're looking at 80 to 90 that are in a football department. And that's not just coaches, that's psychs, um, welfare. It's a big beast. Um, People probably don't fully realise the size of um, AFL sporting clubs and football departments within them. 
Um, is the coach then, how would you align it to a business role? Are they the CEO? Are they the chair? How would you align it to where they'd sit inside an organisational structure then in terms of their responsibility? Yeah, it definitely looks more like a CEO. It's it's more management and that's the big separation you have to make as a player. You're, you, you have all responsibility as a coach but you have less direct impact. So your impact is always through someone. It's through an assistant coach if you're, if you're the head coach or it's through players. So you're always trying to get to an outcome but through someone else. So you can't reach the players and get inside the you in them where you think about you know what it feels like to be a player but you couldn't get close enough to actually activate the you in them? Oh, oh absolutely you can but you're still doing it through a medium and the medium is that person. So when you have great moments, you do, you know, and we had you know, premiership sides at, you know, Collingwood and also leading into my AFL coaching I was part of a state league club where we played in three grand finals, won two premierships, couldn't have been more successful. And you do feel very in sync with your playing group. So they feel like an extension of what you want, but they also know there's just this real great symbiotic sort of relationship where it doesn't feel forced and it's really powerful. And when you're in that, we're in that moment as a coach, it is intoxicating because you've got a whole lot of moving parts working in harmony. And that's a really nice thing, you know. It's like being a conductor of an orchestra, I would imagine. You know, it's that sort of feel. Assuming they can all play. Assuming they can play. And then you have the flip side of that where you can be working with a playing group where you don't have that. And that's that's really challenging. You know, the St Kilda experience, you go into – that was a, a really – and it was an eyes-wide-open entry into St Kilda. So already what – year, What year did you go in? Uh, 2012. Part of going into any AFL club, you there's a cycle to AFL teams, right? It's cyclical. The nature of the draft actually sets it up to be cyclical. Getting aside when they're right at the bottom gives a coach more time frame. You know, my time frame getting to St Kilda was getting there two years before their bottom, but the bottom was already coming. That's a challenging dip of the cycle to go through and in order to make your way through that cycle, there's four or five key fundamental pillars that need to be aligned. The coach is one and the football department is one but board, president, sponsorship, revenue, all of those things deliver peak performance for an AFL club. It's um, recruiting. um, Yeah, there's a lot of factors outside of your control. Yeah, there are. When great clubs have success, all of those things um, are coming together at the right time. And, you know, any premiership side is generally, if you look at them, you'll go sponsorship, recruiting, football performance, talent, it's all in the window. Yeah, there's a whole lot of planets that are orbiting around the same thing. Yeah, right. So you came in at a certain point in the cycle, sort of the outliers thing a bit, but applied to organisation, if you like, because you're coming in at a time where things aren't necessarily setting up to give you the possibility of success um, if you're coming in on the on the downslide. And so how long were you there and then what happened when you exited there? Yep, so two years, um, three-year contract, uh, which was terminated at the end of the um, second year. Um, we had first year, we won 12 games, missed out on the finals by percentage, but it's actually the best result in St Kilda's history for a first-year coach, but still fell short of playing in a final, which we would have loved to have done. 
but already I'd gone to the club and the club were also acutely aware that the list was in rapid decline. So without boring people with all the football details. Um, and the list, let's just put a little clarifier, that's the list of players You've got that you 50 players. Yeah. You've got to make sure that you've got succession, mm-hmm. right? So you've got to make sure you've got an 18-year-old ready to take the 24-year-old's place or the 29-year-old's place that's about to retire. So prior to taking the St Kilda job, I spoke to our head recruiter at Collingwood where I was working and I said, mate, can you tell me a bit about St Kilda's list? And his exact words to me were, it is f- right. not good. right?" Because they didn't have the cash for the, you know, to buy in the players at that point. In the 10 years, if you want to look at where a club is at today, look at the five-year period really before it, right? Because what you're seeing today is a product of what happened five years ago. So that particular club- You mean in terms of their buying power? A, a number of things. So they had the worst access- in the 10-year period prior to me getting there, that club's had the worst access to top 10 draft picks in the league and also had the worst retention rate of, of the draft picks that it had had. So that's bad management, the second piece. So you end up with a dip in talent. Um, talent is king. Yeah, so you, you actually yeah. drive into a shit show. Um, Having said like, all, yeah. I, the other thing I'd like to say is I'm not saying any of that with any negativity, that's just the reality. And I knew that going in. So I was, I'm, I'm up for that challenge. So I knew that walking in the door, despite getting two or three people who were close to me saying, don't, t-, the, the actual challenge of that appealed, appeals to me. That club's won one premiership in its history. That appeals to me. The, the size of that task appealed to me. So it wasn't something I wanted to walk away from. I was like, Let's, let's have a go at this. Appeal to which part of you? It's difficult. It's a challenge. For me, there's nothing wrong with failing. Never have thought that ever. Um, the media would like to create a hero and a villain or success and failure. That's the cycle they have to live by and how they sell papers and build online content. I'm not interested in that. Um, to me, being in the arena and actually competing, that is success regardless of where that end result, success and failure, it's flipped the coin. It's the same thing just with a different look or it's described a different way. To me, I admire people that compete and I really admire people that compete in challenging environments. That's where all the sweet stuff is and some of the things that might still be viewed as failure at St Kilda, that's probably where I've got I've had the most growth and some of the things that I'm really proud of and learnt the most from. So it's, it was a great experience. Yeah, for sure. And I think is it Brené Brown in Daring to Lead who talks about the per, the man, she says, in the arena, mm. that you can stand on the sidelines and throw, throw old bananas, but actually if you go in, someone's going to come out as a, as a so-called loser and so but at least you played the game. What were your – Scotty, I'm interested in actually at that time and um, what were some of your coping mechanisms to deal with being – sacked is the ugly word for it, but being really blindsided and, 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 and taken out of that position a year before your tenure, what were your coping mechanisms to personally try and deal with that? It was pretty public what happened. Where did you go internally to cope? It's a really – I know these people are going to think I'm crazy for saying this, but it's actually a great experience to go through. Not great like it was fun, but great like – it, any any challenge, I think, gives you the opportunity to, to learn something. So what I learned from that experience was there are certain things that you need to be 
certain of that help you cope with any adversity that comes your way. And some of this I only filtered out after sort of reflecting back on it a little bit. So a month prior to uh, me being terminated at St Kilda, I'd actually been told by the president categorically that um, you're an outstanding coach and we want to extend your contract. And then because of literally I was having an internal, um, massive internal disagreement with the head of football and that led to my demise ultimately. But after it happens, my immediate reaction, I was actually the calmest person in the room. I had a president who was shaking as he was delivering me the knowledge. I wasn't shaking because I know who I am and I know what I stand for. How did you not shake in that moment? Like those, again, those those coping mechanisms, like what is it you're telling yourself or how are you shoring up yourself in the midst of that storm? It's the same thing that I would love every kid in Australia to have and it's knowing that no matter what, you are actually good enough or have enough belief that you are going to be okay. It's like when crisis comes, there's a few things you need to be able to do is assess the situation really quickly is the first one. The second one is perspective and perspective is knowing that this too shall pass um, and you have what you need to get through that. And that's a, that's a belief that I would love every kid in Australia to have. And then the last thing is always find the gift because the gift is there. Just look at it. You'll find it. So right in that moment, yes, you're disappointed. You know, when you lose a job or lose your girlfriend or, you know, crash your car, whatever it might be, there's always disappointment or anger and frustration. But if you really quickly you can seize the opportunity that's within that, and maybe some of that comes with a bit of time on the planet as well. I remember walking out of that that particular room and I first thing I did was just I got on my phone to my wife and I said, hey, um, firstly, I just want you to know everything's okay. And I said, I've just been sacked and she, she couldn't believe it. And I said, but most, most importantly, I said, we're okay. I said, and I'm okay. I said, take the kids out of school. I said, we're about to take a holiday. I said, but we're all good. It's only a job. And that's how I felt. Um, wow. So never in the fetal position when challenge comes. So I feel really blessed for all the challenges that I've had through my life that gives you that perspective. In the moment to be able to have that kind of, to assess and be calm in that moment. There's a, it reminds me of a, there's a military uh, acronym and it's OODA. Have you heard of the OODA loop? It's uh, O-O-D-A and it, it stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. Mm, I like that. Which is very, you know, military. But, um, but it sounds like what you did. You had enough space, you created enough space to actually observe and not, you know, creating that space between before you just jump into an explosive um, reaction. I had an amazing, you talk about mentors, I had an amazing CEO. His name was Gavin Hegney, um, works in Perth, incredible entrepreneur. And I remember asking him when I was looking sort of down towards a leadership pathway of, you know, of coaching, um, before I was doing any coaching, I actually said to him, what makes a good CEO? And he said to me, uh, he said, about six days of the year. I said, what do you, said, what do you mean by that? And he said, there'll be six days that present to you every year that are your absolute opportunities as a CEO. He said, they will be the toughest days. He said, but straight away, if you see them as the gift, and he said, that's what makes a great CEO. And he said, that's not to say you're not going to work 365 days of the year, but 
and I do this instinctively now, when challenge comes, I want to have the clearest head in the room uh, and I want to see it's, it is an opportunity. That's how I frame it. But what goes on in your head Think then? Great. I mean, let alone St Kilda, but what are, the, what are the sort of the mental models or things you're using to get your head okay in that moment to create space to observe and not react? I don't panic by nature. I'm not – I don't ride – even with, with success, I'm not, I'm not really high and really low as a person. I'm generally – I'm pretty sort of measured. But when a, when a challenge comes, whether it's a, a physical challenge that occurs through an accident or a business challenge, there is a trigger in my mindset that says it gives me a real clarity. I, I sort of get into a really clear space. So I make sure I breathe, you know, making sure you breathe through any, any sort of anxiety riddle situation is important because breathing helps you think. Yeah, so respect the breath. Big mm. time. So I really centre my breathing. But I'm embracing it. I'm not feeling nervous about it. I'm actually going, awesome. So it's a, I'm saying that to myself, here it is. How good is this that this is coming right now? Because, yeah, you get tested, um, you get stretched, um, you grow. Um, it's a challenge. Wow. So you're sort of reframing. It's like a narrative. You don't define it as uh, nervousness or defeat or imposter, but it's actually framed up as something that's exciting and challenging and a growth opportunity. Yeah, I think your inner voice dictates to all of us. Um, and again, we do a lot of stuff with kids. We talk a lot about the power of that inner voice and it can take you down always two pathways. So a lot of the training from a sporting point of view, you have to have, because there's so many ways a sport knocks you down. <laughs> it sets you up well, to fail a, all the it's time. It's a zero-sum game, isn't it? It is. It Winner is. and loser, it's pretty binary. Yeah. You start a career that's going to end in injury or someone's going to tell you that you're off the list. They're all your end points, so they're all coming regardless. Um, but I think that sets you up. If you don't have a strong level of self-affirmation and strong inner voice that says, no, oh, you're okay, you've got this, embrace it, you actually don't survive um, in sport. Um, but I think that should apply across life. Absolutely, and that's a great segue to... All of this, it's no surprise that you've gone into the phenomenal work that you're doing now at Life Changer. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, there's such depth around your experience and your lived experience, but also your general life philosophy. Tell us about Life Changer. What are you doing there? Life Changer, we're a foundation ultimately um, into our fifth year. We're this year working with close to 10,000 kids which will be in five states. We're about to go into New South Wales in about a month and also in Auckland, actually. We're starting in Auckland on March the 29th. But we're also working somewhere between two and 3,000 mentors. So, And what does Life Changer do? Does it match the mentors with the kids or what's the actual business sort of uh, model or activity? Yeah, I think the first thing to, to note about Life Changer is it's, it, look, it's a preemptive foundation-building program. So... We think there's amazing groups doing work once issues have manifested, so in that repair space. So a kid's in a really dark place and, and right in a vulnerable space. There's some excellent support services. Um, where we felt there was a real gap is what are we doing early to still potentially catch that kid that's right at a pointy end of, of challenge or vulnerability but also to for the kid that's actually going well at 10 or 11 or 12, make sure that they're actually building a, you know, I hate using the word, but a, a, tool, a tool kit or a set of skills 
So when challenge does come their way, um, they're going to be still disappointed or challenged, but they'll be able to make their way through. Mm. So when they get sacked as an AFL coach, they're going to be pissed off and angry. They're all good. They ring their wife and That's on life, they go on a holiday. And how old are the kids that you work with in Life Changer? Really now from, from year seven through to year 11, we've got a program that sort of works across those four years. We tend to leave them alone in year 12. Um, there's a fair bit going on. It's also a framework that enables local community mentors to come into the workshops in small group facilitation and led by life changer facilitators, they can actually play a part in connecting with kids from within their community, often sharing some of their lived experience, often just being there to listen, which is a really powerful thing for kids just to know that there's people in their community that are there. We also work with the parents um, as well. So when kids are coming home from our workshops, parents are understanding how important it is to connect. You know, there's a stat that came out three months ago from Professor Ian Hickey that Australian parents are only having 18 seconds of meaningful conversation per day with their kids. That's because, not enough. Is that because of, uh, you know, a generational issue around not being able to communicate with their kids? Is it our lives are busier working parents? What would you put it down to oh, then? I think it's a combination. I think our lives are busy. You know, often we've got two parents working, you know, to have an income. But I also think we could do a better job of actually skilling parents you know, so it's easy to say have more conversation with your kids at the dinner table, but a lot of parents are going to say, well, what do I talk about? Now, it's okay for me who I've had a coaching background, so, you know, I'm more predisposed to being able to work out, well, what are the things, how can I get my 13-year-old boy to do more than grunt? So I've got a skill set that leans towards that. But some parents, they don't have that. You know, they don't have a teaching degree or um, mentoring experience. So I think we can do a better job of upskilling parents to sort of just to be able to tap into the journey of their kid. Yeah, we certainly at, at FutureAmp, you know, we work with kids around career education, pathway development and, and skill building and one of the biggest barriers to young people's idea of self and potential is their parents because it's so indelible, the effect of parents on their kids. How do you engage with parents? Is it in workshops or through resources? Yeah, we do. We do two things with parents now. One, we'll do a separate workshop with parents alone. It sort of has a dual purpose. One, it lets them know what the Life Changer program is about and how we're preparing them ultimately for some of the conversations that we're getting the kids to bring home. So we're actually in a workshop, we're saying, when you go home tonight, you have to discover your um, your mum's or your dad's or your sister's hero type. And here's how you have that conversation. So the kids are coming home armed with that, ready to go. Um, but we've also forewarned the parents. So they're coming, be ready. And here's how important that conversation is. Um, we do that. And then we also run um, virtual workshops with the parent and the kids. So they get to actually join and do some activities together that are often fun and interactive or really thoughtful and poignant and challenging. Um, but they're doing it together as a family. Um, and we set them some goals and challenges that they can sort of carry on, you know, once the workshop's finished. So it's sort of a dual approach at the moment. What are the hero types? The hero types are mastermind, jester, warrior, and guardian. So we've all been through personality profiling and Myers-Briggs and so many of those different tools. So we wanted to create an accessible version that was enough so the kids could see some of, particularly some of their own positive traits 
within those hero types and some of the potential downsides um, as well. So like a jester, high energy, loves being life of the party, loves having fun with their group, but can also be, has a tendency to be distracted and hard to keep focused. So generic sort of descriptions that kids will pick out the components of it that they see as being relevant to them. And then they'll work through and they'll realise often that, hey, I'm, I might be, I'm a bit jester, but I'm a bit mastermind as well. And so that promotes some really great conversation. Or is it possible to actually, um, over the journey of your life, to actually move through some of those or develop skill sets as a mastermind, et cetera? So it just promotes great conversation. Mm-hmm. What are you? Which hero? <laughs> it's a really good question. And my staff always challenge me on this a little bit. I'm a strong goal setter and always have been. So the warrior, there is a tendency for, I have some warrior tendencies, but I, parenting certainly brings out a hell of a lot of your guardian. You know, I've, I've cried more since I've had kids. I don't think I ever probably cried prior to having kids, but I would cry more as a, as a father. Oh, haven't we all? It's yep. just ridiculous. They make <laughs> they, you cry. They break you. Absolutely. <laughs> Before they make you, they break you. Um, <laughs> but certainly the guardian component, my whole family has been around, you know, I guess if you look at roles that actually tend to move towards a guardian, you know, my mum was a nurse for 30 years and then worked with trauma victims, teenage victims in car crash in Rocky Bay Village in Perth. Um, my grand, my beautiful Croatian grandmother, that was the house that if someone needed a meal, they were at the table. That was just constant. So I reckon by osmosis you probably assume a lot of that. And I had a brilliant half-ethnic, half-Croatian, half-Australian upbringing. So I got the great parts of being there, I guess, from the Croatian side, was that it was that community and a lot of our Croatian uncles, etc. they had nothing but themselves, as in their community. So that, you know, pigs on the spit on the weekend and market gardens in Fremantle and there's a tightness to that community that I think was a, a privileged upbringing for me. But... I think we've got to try and create a bit more of that around our kids now. With Life Changer and, you know, 10,000 kids you're on track for this year and I know you've done some amazing work over the last four years since you concepted the business, what's been a, a moment that you thought we actually changed a life or put a kid on a different trajectory than they would have been on? Um, two weeks ago, last Friday at a workshop in Werribee, we had a, a 12-year-old girl and... Um, she hadn't been uh, – so the school has their own wellbeing program, like many, but not all do. But she hadn't been identified as being at risk. And through an and, uh, a interactive um, but written activity, what we saw on a page uh, was probably – and I keep it on my phone now. Um, not that I'm lacking any motivation, but if I ever need it, I just read it. What we caught there, if you're a parent, you can't read it and not cry. Two suicide attempts and everything that was written there was, I can't wait for the third. Whilst that's tragic and it hurts you to hear that, it also, there is a satisfaction that knows that we were able to capture that in that filter and immediately bring that to attention of the wellbeing program and wrap support around her that was so needed. So when we, when we get one like that, yeah, you, you actually do think, have you saved a life? I mean, what you're doing is is it's deep work and it's well-being and getting kids, you know, when they're young 
You know, they're, they're young, they're developing, and they can take all sorts of paths. So it's you're working with all kids, not just marginalised kids, right? And you happen to catch this this young young girl at a point at which someone had to hear her story, and thank God, you know, or you know, someone was there to, to hear that and catch her. Um, how do you so so that happens, and then what happens from there? Uh, with you catch someone like that, and then they they then they get the access they need in terms of formalised um, help pathways, or does life changes sort of do that deeper work? I'm, no, what, what we, you know, we're really clear on what we are and what we're not. Um, we're not a counselling service. We're a, we, we outline a pathway to the best version of themselves. It's a positive psychology mentoring program. Um, so you're separate to something like REACH, for example, because um, they do a lot of work in this wellbeing space, but yeah. Yeah, they do, and they deal with a lot more at-risk groups, um, whether they handle the counselling process internally or outsource it to Lifeline, Kids Helpline, Headspace. I'm not sure of their pathway at that point. But for us, it is we work really um, in partnership with the wellbeing program of the school. So our child wellbeing policy, there's a really clear – our facilitators are charged with looking. So sometimes visually you see it, sometimes you don't. There are some activities that lend themselves towards capturing – and filtering, it's really interesting that there's one activity in particular that just seems to drag that really at-risk kid into the net and you get them, which is awesome. But at that point, it's handing over to school wellbeing, GP, and that level of support gets wrapped around them. Yeah, right. To what extent, when you think about the work you're doing, which which is life-changing, absolutely, you know, uh, on lots of levels, but what you're dealing with is a whole system. You're dealing with parents, community, intergenerational issues. How do you think about the big wicked kind of system-wide problem that you're dealing with in terms of really being able to change lives for the long term? Yeah, it's, um, it's daunting. When really early in the conceptual stage, it was probably after about 12 months where we had a model. Um, so it was more than just concept and big ideas. We sort of had a model that we think is worth exploring. I had a conversation with a friend from, well, at that point, I was just introduced to him. So it was an executive um, from Perpetual. And it was, we were put together to talk about what I was trying to do. And his words to me were, he said, mate, he said, you know what you're trying to do is climb Everest. I'm quite pragmatic in the way that I generally think about things. But I did say to him, and he laughs now, <laughs> but I, I said to him, I said, yeah, I said, you're probably right. I said, but wouldn't it be awesome if we just got halfway up, you know? And there is a part of me that is like, well, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not possible. Right now we're, you know, and you and I were discussing off air, just that that whole measurement and outcomes and impact piece. And, you know, I'd like to be transparent enough to say that we're getting in some ways inspiring feedback and measurement but even right now, I know we need to further partner and we just have with Flinders University to keep taking that to the next level and challenging our program to really drive towards the outcomes that we want. We're on that journey, but I'm also not stupid enough to think that we have the whole answer either. It's a really, it's complex and people go into their own home environments and there's a lot. But I, <laughs> when I feel daunted by it, I still break it down to one kid because if I think about it sometimes in tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of kids, which is ultimately where we want to get to, 
it can become really overwhelming, but I do often just bring it back to one kid. And what if, and I've seen change in one kid in workshops. I've seen it. And that sort of drives me a little bit because I know that it's there. You see the kid, the you, it's kind of back to your coaching in a way, just recognising the person inside. You've been that person who saw the thing to go for and, and had that goal. And we both know it takes the outliers to change the world and people with audacious goals who say, I can see Everest, I have no idea how I'm going to get to the top, but I'm going to at least have a crack at the first few steps. So it's okay if you don't know how big this thing's going to get, but we need people like you to high risk and very, very high reward, even if you achieve 10 steps up the mountain. Um, So thank you for all the amazing work you're doing um, to work with young people to try and um, bring people back from the brink and put them on another path. It's awesome, Scotty. We always end these chats by asking our amazing guest, if we think about where the world's at and that Not everyone's path is certain and life can be pretty messy, even for the best of us. Who do you think is doing human really well? Wow. I actually want to use that question as an opportunity to um, acknowledge mums. On my executive team, I have three, about to become four, but three, three mums, four kids, three kids and two kids. And why they're doing human well is if I want to get shit done, they are the ones uh, and they they have amplified and improved our business unlike anything I've ever seen because of the skill set, um, the grit, the management skills, so much of it that comes through their experience as mums. But it's given me and I've my own wife has got three boys and, and me, four, so four teenagers, in working with mums, I've actually developed a, a different level of appreciation for how bloody good they are. And I'm not just talking good as mum, I'm talking business savvy, entrepreneur, get stuff done. Um, uh, they are incredible. So I think there's a lot of mums out there that are doing human incredibly well. Thanks, Scotty. I'll absolutely endorse. I'll second that as a mum of four, uh, working as an entrepreneur and in businesses <laughs> and trying to manage You're all those example, lives. 100%. Um, well, like there's a lot of us out there, um, but thank you. It's been such a pleasure to touch you. Madge, um, I just want to also say all of the stuff that you're doing, the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is because I'm also in awe of what you're doing with Future Amp and I really wanted to just have this conversation with you based on that, but um, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 